As we say every week, most every week we try to say that we hope and we pray uh, that RUF, that you find RUF to be a safe place uh, for the convinced and unconvinced. Whether it's your first time, whether it's your umpteenth time, whether you are churched and Christian as they get, or whether you have no idea what to think about Christianity. Uh, We want this hour to be a time for anybody to come. Uh, And we do the same thing. Every week. That's our aim is to do the same thing every week, Um, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether it's uh, an even year, election year. We come together and we open the Bible uh, because we want to hear from the truth of God's word. Uh, God speaking to us through his word because he says in his word that that is how he speaks. Um, And so that's what we do, and we've been doing this uh, semester, Revelation, uh, looking at what God is revealing to us. Not concealing, not confusing, not scaring. That was never God's intent for this book, but rather to reveal. Let's just go ahead and bring uh, the post-election feels into what we're going to look at tonight. Um, And think about some questions. Why is it uh, that some of us feel as though the world just got that much closer to going over the brink because of what happened yesterday? Rhetorical question. (laughs) Keep your answers to yourself. Um, Or take to Twitter like right now. Um, Pastor just asked what I think. Uh, No, I did not. Keep it yourself. Anyway, off topic already. Sorry. Why is it on the flip side, others of us, feel like somehow the world was just brought back from the brink because of what happened yesterday. Two polar opposite reactions to the same event and apparently split right down the middle of this country, 59 million and 59 million, right? That's a generalization that everybody on each side feels the same, and that's not true. That's another discussion. Why is it, here you go, that the exact same thing happens every four years? Have you thought about that one today? I, you know, I, I thought about this uh, not, not many hours ago. Um, it was, I can't do the math. Oh my gosh. 12 years ago. Most of you were like six or younger. I, I can't do the math. Um, 12 years ago. Social media was not as ubiquitous, but it was, it was kind of kicking up. And pe- look, people felt the same way in 2004, believe it or not. They talked the same way, the world's over, Kerry won the popular vote, Bush won the electoral... No, wait, that was 2000. Anyway, I'm mixing up all my history and messing up the introduction. And spoiler, spoiler, I can't say it, spoiler alert, the same thing will happen in four years. Get ready, go ahead ahead and get ready for it, right? Why is it? There's, I would suggest to you, and what we're going to look at tonight is going to show us, there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger than elections. There's something bigger, dare I say it, than the United States of America. Right? Ooh. Right? Let me use a more personal uh, analogy. Personal to me. You don't care. But two years ago, the most inevitable thing of all inevitabilities happened. My team, Mississippi State, was ranked number one in all of college football for four weeks. Look at that. You need to hear me. Mississippi State fans, we will be living on that for the next 100 years. 50 years from now, we will be just as terrible as we are this year. And we're going to be like, hey, do you remember 50 years ago when we were number one? It's just like a national championship to us, okay? Why is it 
On the flip side, at the beginning of this football season, when my team lost to South Alabama, I felt like my world was ending. (laughs) Why is it? Because something bigger is going on. Whether it's watching football, whether it's my daughter pretending to be a princess, whether it's any of us watching a superhero movie as there's a dramatic scene and the villain seems to have the inevitable um, upper hand, right? There's something in all of us that longs for something akin to a hero that will swoop in and fix all of it. And when that doesn't happen, or if that doesn't happen, we feel devastated. And we feel like the world is ending, right? Why is it? As we end the, in, near the end of this letter, uh, and the visions contained in it, as we've looked at it, as many of them as we could this semester, what we see tonight is this. There is indeed a hero, and indeed that hero will win, and indeed that hero is God. And it always has been, and it always will be. There is one who will right all wrongs. And when I say all wrongs, I mean all wrongs. He will right All wrongs. He will rule in perfect power and he will do it all. Catch this. In the name of love. YouTube. In the name. All right, never mind. Just joking. Everybody knows that song, right? I should just play that and pray and we'd be done. Um, We need to see this. We need, regardless of the circumstances of your life at this moment, we need what is contained here in Revelation 19. So would you? either in your handout or your Bibles, read with me the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia! And from the throne came a voice, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, I want to see three things, three questions I want to work through with you. What's happening here? What caused it? And how do we get in on it? Because once you figure out what's happening, you want in on it. What's happening here? What's caused it? How do we get in on it? All right, first thing, what's happening? 
We've been uh, kind of on a bit of a terrifying ride uh, the last few weeks, starting going all the way back a few weeks to when we were in Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, we read about a dragon, right? And the dragon's like following this pregnant woman. He wants to eat her baby. We kind of freaked out about it. It was kind of weird, right? Uh, but it represented the church and the people of God, and he wants to wage war on the woman, the church. And he does that, right? Uh, And then the next chapter, we read about two beasts. And what stinks about the two beasts is that they also want to make war on the people of God. And so they come and they join the dragon and they do just that. And then last, uh, two weeks ago, what we saw, that there was Babylon, the great prostitute, who rode on the beast and seduced the nations uh, and even the people of God at times. But now, as we get to Revelation 19... As the vision begins to wrap up, there's a loud cry. Alleluia. This is kind of interesting. Alleluia. I don't know what you... I'm assuming you somewhat have heard that word before. It sounds... It's like a really Christian-y word, right? That word is only used once in the New Testament. Right here, where it's used four times. In the Greek New Testament, that word only appears... Four times, and it's all in this chapter right here. It literally, it's an imperative. It's an imperative. It literally means praise the Lord. You, praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. So, here again, here it is. What's happening? Just like Revelation 4, when we were in the throne room of God, what we see is that the central and resoundingly focused activity of heaven is the praise and worship of of God. That's what's happening. The central and resoundingly focused activity of heaven is the praise and worship of God. Look at verse 1. Salvation, power, and glory belong to him. Verse 5. Praise him, all you his servants. Verse 6. Praise him for the almighty reigns. Verse 10. Worship God. It's over and over and over again, right? Here it is. As the story draws to a close, as the story ends, as the story will end, and as eternity will go on forever, worship of this God is at the center. Let's be honest. Does that bore you? (laughs) Be honest. Let's be real here. Everybody's kind of heavy right now. Let's lighten up, okay? Um, Does that bore you a little bit? Worship. Because to us, worship and praise, it has a lot of different connotations. Worship and praise to us is like that portion of like the religious service where we actually get to like do things. Or it's that, or it's that thing that I go to to like get my feels again so I can feel good about God again. Uh, I need some worship tonight, right? Uh, we, we have mixed up connotations about what worship means. If we're going to understand what's happening here and why it's happening, we need a little bit bigger view of what worship and praise are. And here it is simply. Worship is what happens when you find something valuable. Think about that. It's just a simple definition. Worship is what happens when you find something valuable. I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you inherited from someone in your family a piece of jewelry. Uh, maybe this is easier for girls, but guys, think of something that you wouldn't mind wearing. I don't know. Uh, that you inherited, right? And, you know, it doesn't blow you away, but it's, it's kind of neat. You inherited it. So sometimes you wear it. Uh, sometimes you don't really, sometimes you forget about it. You don't really care. But one day you're wearing it and one of your friends says, you know what? I think you should take that somewhere to see how much it's worth. And you think to yourself, I've never actually thought about how much it's worth. And so you take them up on their advice. You go to somebody who can assess the value. 
whoever the person is, is looking at it and they just drop whatever they're holding. And they look at you and you say, they say, I don't want to touch that. That thing is priceless. Do you even understand what that is? And you go to yourself, um, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, that's why I wear it to corn party. I don't know. Um, right? Now think about in that moment, what happens to you? What happens to you in that moment? Because you've now found out that this thing that you possess is priceless. It's invaluable, right? There's a bunch of different things happen, but just break it down like this. Emotionally, your, your emotions towards this object, right? You kind of liked it. You didn't dislike this thing. But now, you're obsessed with it, right? You own something. You possess something now that is priceless, okay? Socially, it now affects how you interact with other people. Who in the world is going to make you afraid or feel bad about yourself? Um, yeah, you, guess what? I own something that's priceless. Get away. Um, go tweet somebody else. I don't know. Your actions towards this object, right? You used to just kind of toss it on the dresser and you even sometimes forgot that you owned it. But now you do not go a second waking or sleeping without knowing where that thing is, right? What has happened between you and that object? I would suggest to you, using the simple definition that I used, worship has happened. Because worship simply is what you do in response to finding something valuable. Okay? Anything you find valuable, you give yourself to it. And so now we can kind of understand why the Bible talks about the fact that we are prone to worship all kinds of things. We can worship ourselves. We can worship our friends. We can worship our boyfriend or girlfriend. We can worship our grades. We can worship our parents. We can worship our political party or our president-elect, whatever. We can worship all kinds of things. And we will give ourselves in all kinds of ways to those things. We'll give our time. We'll give our money. We'll give um, our effort. Our, we'll even give our bodies in cases, right? Worship is what happens when you find something valuable. Worship is happening at the center of reality itself. Something is of great value here. More on that in a second. But the second part is praise. They're praising. They're worshiping, yes, but they're worshiping through their praise. What is praise? Praise is simply what you say when you worship. Praise is not a feeling. Praise is not, uh, there's a whole bunch of things you probably think it is is not. Praise is what you say when you worship something. C.S. Lewis, um, I, I can't put it better than him because he's amazing. Um, but in his reflections on the Psalms, he talks about how as a young Christian, he always struggled to understand, how can I enjoy praising God when he commands me to do it, Right? You all have ever thought about kind of how paradoxical that is? How am I supposed to enjoy praising someone who demands that I praise them? This is what he said. This is what he figured out. You know, I never figured, I, I never thought before that men spontaneously praise whatever they value. So they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise that we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. We know about this. 
We know about this. You know that I love football because I love it and I talk about it a lot. And you probably hate it because I talk about it, right? And use it in sermons all the time. Sorry. Um, So what is happening here in Revelation 19 at this point? The thunderous praise of heaven is the result of having looked into the face of something that is altogether praiseworthy. And simply put, they are the acts of God in history. They are praising God for what he has done. They want to give their life to what God has done. The hosts of heaven contemplate this God and all that he has done and all that he will do. And they erupt in thunderous praise. That's what's happening. And so at this point, this is what it does. It begs the question, what is all the excitement about? Let's move on. That's what's happening. But what caused it? Well, two things, actually. Uh, The first five verses, we see this. The first thing that caused it is that God is our champion. God is our champion. We've seen this, actually, multiple times, especially in the last few weeks, as we look at at the conflict of history of the serpent, the devil, and all of his minions setting themselves in opposition to God and all that would follow him, right? And I don't want to rehash the last three or four weeks of the series, but we've seen it. To ally yourself with this God is to invite conflict, is to invite struggle, is to invite suffering. Jesus said as much, right? The dragon seeks to destroy. The beasts use brute force and deception. And the whore seduces us. Those were the pictures that we've seen in the last few weeks. They are all mighty foes. And it is to our own destruction that we dismiss them. It is to our own destruction that we dismiss them as not mighty foes. But what is the first cry of Revelation 19? After the Alleluia. Salvation. Salvation. We are saved. You got to get this, y'all. We talked about it two weeks ago. Babylon represented all that is wrong in the world. And the fact that the people of this world love to follow and give their lives to all that is wrong in the world. Even the church. Read the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. They got caught up in it too. Look at the election results yesterday. We know the church gets caught up in it too. Babylon represented a realm, a system, an institution where two plus two does not equal four. And it is glorified. And it cries and it causes the downtrodden and the downcast to cry out. Where is righteousness? Where is justice? And what this is saying at the beginning of Revelation 19 is it is no more. Unrighteousness and injustice is no more because God has won and he will right all wrongs. If we do not feel the weight of inequity and the weight of injustice in this world, not because our person wasn't elected, not because our right person wasn't nominated and I just had to vote for the worst possible choice uh, or the best between worst, whatever. Um, No. If we do not feel the weight that injustice is around us and we participated in it, We participate in it daily. We're ignoring the facts of this world. You know, so you look at verse 3, and that seems rather vindictive. The smoke rises from her forever. Um, That seems rather vindictive. But what this is saying is that God will make everything right, and we will see it. 
And we will behold it and we will know that it is true. How could Jesus say, love your enemies? Have you ever thought, have you ever stopped and actually thought? Jesus was not just trying to say, smile when bad things happen. He said, love your enemies. And he meant it. Love the people that want to kill you. That had real application for the people that heard this letter. That Jesus said, love your enemies. My enemies are actually trying to kill me because I love you, Jesus. You think Jesus didn't know that when he said, love your enemies? Fair question. How can Jesus say, love your enemies? How could Jesus say, turn the other cheek? When literally that was happening for people. And the other cheek meant their lives. How could we not freak out at election results? Because what Revelation 19 is saying is that if this is true, if God really is the just judge that will set everything right, I don't have to freak out. Because it's not up to me. It's up to him. And he will win. And I can also take part in righting the wrongs of this world, knowing that if I fail, it's not the end of the world. Because he will win and he will right all wrongs. He's the just judge. We've seen this. But here it is. This is what I want you to leave with tonight. The beauty of Revelation 19 is what follows after this. Because the victory of God over his and our enemies is simultaneous, meaning it cannot be separated from this fact as well. It conjoins with the marriage supper of the Lamb. When his bride is presented to her and there's a feast, there's a celebration, there's a party for all eternity. This is what this means. The beauty of this story is that God is not just a just judge, though that's what we need. He is also a fierce lover. He says this about himself throughout the Bible. He's not a person who's just standing over your shoulder saying, you better get that right. You know, I sent my son for you. You know, he lived a perfect life. Have you tried to live that life? Bet you can't. Bet you won't. You're going to do it? That's not God. What this says is God, he's not only a just judge, he is a fierce and compassionate lover. Have you ever thought about this? The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Isn't that interesting? That the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. At the beginning of the Bible, God creates man, the crown of his creation, his own image to represent his glory throughout all of creation. But God says at the end of creation, wait a minute, it's not good that that man is alone. Why? Because he's in my image and I am a triune God, three persons in one God. And if he is going to live in that image, it is not good that he is alone. So we must find a helper suitable for him. And remember that word helper is also a word used for God. It's not like a sidekick word, whatever. Anyway, it's not where we're going tonight. And so we get at the end of Genesis 2. God presents man with his bride. And we get the first wedding ceremony. The beginning of the world. And what we're told through Jesus and others applying that picture is that is exactly the picture of what God wants to show us he wants with us. But the tragedy, if you know the story at the beginning of the Bible, is that that couple decided that they didn't want the story to go like that. That they wanted to decide what they wanted to do. And so they lived for themselves and it all fell apart. And then thus the rest of the story of scripture unfolds. 
And then it ends with a wedding. So here is the story of the Bible in one simple sentence or so. The story of the Bible is one of the husband heart of God pursuing his adulterous people, not to subdue them, but to marry them, to unite himself with them and love them for the rest of eternity. That is the story of Scripture. There you go. Let's pray. (laughs) Sure. story of Revelation 19 about that story, the story of the husband heart of God pursuing his adulterous people until he can marry them and show his love to them. The story of Revelation 19 is that God will win that quest. He will. And he will take his people to himself. Now, simple question, is it any wonder That all of heaven is full of worship and praise. Is it any wonder that all of heaven is completely caught up in joy and expressible in who this God is and what he has done. And they cannot help but give their whole entire being to worshiping him. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that in Matthew 22, Jesus himself said that the kingdom could be compared to a wedding feast? Think about the best party that you've ever been to, even if maybe bad things happened at it. But think about the best party that you've ever been to. And now think about that party being magnified a bajillion fold and going on forever and there not being one thing to be ashamed about it. That would be a great party, would it not? Right? That's heaven. That's eternity with God. That is the picture we're being painted. So you got to ask yourself, is that how you view heaven? Is that how you view salvation and eternity with God? Are you at least, I, I hope through that picture, you're at least beginning to see how shallow it is to ask a person, don't you want to go to heaven? Because you don't want to go to hell, do you? The Bible never talks about it that way. Look, you do not want to go to hell, and I don't either. But that's not the reason to want heaven. (laughs) The Bible over and over and over and over and over again, we're going to see this more in the next couple of weeks. The reason we want heaven is because God is there. And he is ushering us in. That's heaven. My friends... Revelation 19, the purpose of it as this letter draws to a close is this. You need to know that this day is coming. You need to know that everything that causes you heartache, everything that causes you to cry, everything that causes you anxiety, everything that causes you worry and stress and insecurity in this life, it will be made obsolete. Because God will right all wrongs. But you also need to know that in righting all wrongs, it cannot be separated, separated from the fact that he does it because he loves you. He loves you. You know, a lot of you, you come here to RUF uh, probably because you grew up in church or you became a Christian before you came to college. Uh, and you know you need to be here on some level. You want to grow. You want to learn more. You, you know that you don't need to be sitting in your dorm room doing nothing, though sometimes you find yourself doing that. But you do wonder yourself why you have absolutely no joy. 
And you don't know what to do with it. And you feel guilty about it. And you think, what am I supposed to do to get that joy thing that the Christians in the Bible are always talking about? You find yourself constantly jealous of other people instead of being happy for them. You find yourself constantly complaining, even when things are actually pretty good. You find yourself exhausted and anxious and stressed. And for some reason, you can never find rest. You can never find peace. You can never find assurance in anything. And you don't know why. This is what I want to tell you tonight. That if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean, and the Bible never claims, that your life is going to be sunny days and rainbows. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Worship and praise does not mean forget everything out these walls and put on a happy face for 30, 40 minutes. That's not what worship and praise means. But if there's no joy in your life, it's not because you're doing it wrong. It's not because you're not doing it well enough. But maybe perhaps it's because you've missed something about Jesus and about who he is and about what he has done. Christianity is not some story. It's not just some story, some worldview that you need to adopt. It's not some collection of precepts that you need to intellectually assent to. It's not just some state of emotion that if you lack it, you've got to find some way to gin it up and be sold out and be on fire and go, I'm going to go get the world. That's not Christianity. These people were dying because they said they loved Jesus and that was it. They were just trying to live their lives. And what God wants to tell them at the end of this letter is there's a day coming when I will take you to myself and I will pour my love on you for eternity. That is Christianity. It's about a God who wins not because he's right, but because he loves. What a thought, right? Finally, again, maybe you don't get it, but if we begin to get this, if we begin to wonder if this is true, we cannot help but ask the final question. Okay, well, how do I get into that? I don't know if what you're saying is true, but I at least want to know if it is, how do I get into it? Well, let me spoiler alert and jump ahead to Revelation 22, verse 17. Well, some of the last words of the book, this is what is said. The spirit and the bride say, come And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. How do I get into that? Who gets into this? Everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. Everyone. no matter who you voted for, interestingly enough, is invited. Here's the great thing about the guest list to this wedding. (laughs) If you're hearing me talk right now, you're on it, and that you're being invited. It's an open invitation, and that is why we gather here week in and week out, because we need to be reminded of that. And we need to hear it over and over and over again. Here's the thing about invitations, right? Think about it. When you get invited to a party, especially a big important one, and you didn't really know if you're going to be invited to or not, but you know it's really important, what's the first question you ask? Girls, you know this one. What? What do I wear? Interesting you should ask. 
Look at verse 8. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The beautiful part of this wedding, and guys, yes, you are the bride. The beautiful part of this wedding is that the groom clothes his bride. In other words, her beauty, her worthiness of attending, her righteousness is not her own. And it's not up to her to gin it up. It's put on her by the lamb himself. You know, my favorite part of weddings, my campus minister used to say things like this, and he was the first one that turned me on to it. And now it is my favorite part of weddings. My favorite part of weddings is looking for the people in the crowd. And now, now that I'm a minister and I get to stand up front and actually look at the whole crowd, uh, it's even better. My favorite part of weddings is looking for the people in the crowd who get it. They get what a wedding is for and what it's about. And you know how I know they get it? I know that they get it. When the doors open in the back, they don't look at the bride. They look at the groom. Why? Because we all know that the best grooms are the ones that behold their bride for the first time and they melt. Right? Knees knocking, face scrunching, eyes welling, and you know in that moment that guy is in love. We love that, right? And here's the thing. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking to yourself, man, I know, I know. I, I, I want to love God like that. I want to feel about God like that. You are freaking missing the picture. You are not the groom Jesus is, and he's looking at you. That's the gospel. It's not how you feel about Jesus. It's about how he feels about you and what he did about it. That is the gospel. And that is Revelation 19. The good news of the gospel is that when God looks at you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how well you think you are doing as a Christian, he looks at you and he says, oh my. You are beautiful. And nothing can change that. If you've never heard that, if you've never believed it, you're never going to have anything to truly rejoice in. You're never going to have anything to worship with your whole heart. And you're never going to have the words for praise. But interesting question. What if it's true? That is an invitation. Let's pray. Father, you love us? <laughs> is it that simple? Maybe even we've said before, we know that it's true. But why don't we believe it? Father, we need you to love us. Again, and again, and again, and again. And maybe, just maybe, we'll believe it. Would you do that for us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.